I last saw Beth at her mailbox Tuesday morning. Her blonde hair was flowing. She looked happy and glowing. She had on some wonderful shoes. I remember thinking, you go girl. Our last conversation was at the gas station. Her mom was in the car. She was so looking forward to a new life. We laughed and hugged. I have so many wonderful memories of Beth. We had really worked hard the last five years becoming the women we were truly meant to be. I wish I could place a huge bandage on the hearts of Beth's family to take their pain away. Just know that Beth will always be in my heart. There was a large, colorful rainbow beaming across the sky Thursday night. I truly believe Beth had something to do with that. This memorial was posted by Beth's friend, Susie Brandolini. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we are talking about the murder of Beth Spartacino by her son, Matthew Worcester. As a heads up, this episode contains instances of murder and familial abuse. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please subscribe to it or hit follow while we chat. Let's dive in. Michael Worcester and Beth Hansen Spartacino were married in Brockton, Massachusetts on February 13, 1993. Soon after, Beth became a licensed practical nurse. She put aside her career aspirations of becoming an RN to join her husband in building his business, Unitel. It was an up-and-coming telecommunications business, and she was busy rearing their children. They bought a pretty home on a pretty street in northeastern Massachusetts. It had six and a half acres and was right next to his parents' and brothers' houses. And they settled into their lives, raising chickens, growing herbs and vegetables, and rearing their three sons, Matthew, Cameron, and Dominic. Although she wasn't pursuing her RN, Beth had lots of interest to keep her busy. Beth loved her children dearly, and she also loved cooking for them. She earned her master's certification in Reiki, an alternative healing art based on Japanese medicine, and started an organic home-crafted soap business. She also rented a booth at the local farmer's market to sell her soap, along with the produce they grew in their garden. Life seemed idyllic. She sounds like a complete Pinterest mom. Like She's doing the homesteading, she's doing the farmer's market. I bet all her kids' food was organic. She sounds like a pretty cool woman, I think. Yeah, it sounds like they have a pretty good life so far. Yeah, it does. And on top of all of that, her husband's building a wonderful company. Yeah, and so they've got financial stability. It sounds like they have it all. They do. They sound like a family that has not just everything financially, but they have family nearby too. Yeah, that sounds nice. But there must have been a dark side or they wouldn't be on this podcast. (laughs) You're so negative. Sometimes. (laughs) But am I right? (laughs) You're right. So... One of Beth's friends from the farmer's market, Marie Prey, recalls the booth being a family endeavor. She remembers the dad, Michael, and the boys carrying in boxes of goods and working cheerfully to help Beth set the booth up and run it every week. 
She remembers Matthew as a quiet, helpful boy who turned into a good-looking young man who seemed close to his mother. They were a very sweet and happy family. Everybody wanted to be them. Well, until later. Like most of their friends, she most likely knew there had been troubles along the way. Most of their friends don't talk about it, but Beth had had some troubles with alcoholism, and she was five years sober when she filed for divorce on March 5, 2010. Additionally, Matthew had dropped out of high school in October, his sophomore year, due to some issues he'd had there. Was his sophomore year in 2010, or was this a different year? Yes, it was in 2010, the same year she filed for divorce. Okay. According to the Boston Globe, a childhood friend described Matthew as a loner who spent hours in a treehouse that he'd built on his parents' property. He'd also been sent to an outdoor experience for kids who were described as wayward. According to his friend, this program was a nice field trip for Matt, but it hadn't really helped him resolve his problems. But no one really wants to talk about the problems that he had prior to the murder. That's interesting. I wonder what kind of problems he was having. I was also surprised that the wilderness experience was described as a field trip. What, what I've heard of those, they're pretty intense. I think what his friend was trying to say is that Matt was very well versed in outdoor things. Oh. And so instead of it being the struggle that it might have been for some city fight kids, it was just a field trip for him. Oh, okay. Anyway, the pending divorce shed light on some of the cracks in that foundation in that perfect family that we were seeing. Michael was very unhappy about the divorce. He felt he was losing his children and his home. I couldn't find anything regarding how he felt about Beth before she filed, but this divorce action got ugly pretty fast. First, Michael wanted custody of the children, and this was predictably a cause for contention. Second, Michael felt entitled to the marital home. His parents lived right next door, and he definitely did not feel okay with Beth ending up in that house. He wanted to live there with his boys. In fact, her remaining in the house appears to be where everything probably went really sideways. Uh, a lot of times divorce will really show people's worst side. Yes. And it's really emotional. The marital home is a really emotional issue, especially if it's a house that you bought specifically because it's right next to your parents and your brother. Exactly. And really, Beth isn't going to stay there in the long term. Beth stipulates with Michael that once he pays her her share of the marital assets, that she will move out. Oh, that seems fair. So, yeah. So it's not that he will lose the house forever, but that still seemed to be a real point of contention for him that she was there at all. Okay, so he wanted her out now, and she was kind of negotiating and saying, I'll, I'll leave as soon as I get my share. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we should start with the first point, though. It's really kind of unusual for a man to even ask for custody of the children. Do we know why he was doing that? There isn't any information in the case telling us why he was doing that. But we know, based on historical data that when the man who is not the primary caretaker is insisting on getting custody of the children, it's usually a tactic. 
to either punish the woman or to delay the divorce. Oh. From everything that we have seen here, he was building a career and he was really busy with his business. Mm -hmm. And it's fairly clear that the primary caretaker was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So what did he say, though? Did he... Do we have any of the filings or what he said, kind of his justification for asking for custody? Well, from the start, he started to argue that Beth wasn't capable of living with the children. He claimed she wasn't able to deal with the children without high conflict and violence. He cites one evening in July when, after returning the children home after a peaceful day with him, a fight erupted within the hour of returning home. Beth and Matthew got into a physical altercation and she told him she'd called the police and she told Matthew to get out. She also had called Michael for support, but it doesn't look like she got any. Michael turned around and went to court asserting that, quote, when the children are in my care, they are calm and peaceful and there are rarely any arguments. He didn't mention the campaign he was waging against Beth. He asserted Beth was incapable of properly caring for her children due to what he referred to as some condition. He then asserted, I believe the children are no longer safe while in her custody, while leaving out the fact that he was campaigning against her with the children. Okay, so how was he campaigning against her? That comes out in the court documents that Beth files when she decides she needs an emergency order of protection. Okay, so let's take a second and talk about a bunch of this legalese we're talking about. Um, first, we should talk about domestic violence, because a lot of kinds of domestic violence can lead to a protective order. So in this podcast, we mostly talk about parasite, which is when a child kills a parent, and that is a kind of domestic violence. But in some parasite cases, there are other forms of domestic violence also involved. So children often become embroiled in adult-sized issues, which looks like happened here. Um, They can become victims of, at the least, vicarious abuse, where they view or become entangled in spouse-on-spouse abuse. Other types of domestic violence, child abuse we've all heard of, when a child is directly abused by a parent, and then sometimes a child is abusing a parent. And any of these types of abuse can be the reason a person applies for an order of protection which is sometimes called a restraining order. just depends on where you are, what name they use. Um, Typically, an emergency order will be issued during an emergency or ex parte hearing. Ex parte hearing just means that the person that's being filed against is not required to be there. And that emergency order will order the accused to stay away from the person filing for protection until a formal hearing can take place. How long does it take for the hearing to take place? So usually there's a really tight time constraint on that um, because the accused still has rights and they don't want to... You're trying to balance protecting a person versus making sure the other person gets a chance to defend themselves. So usually Mm -hmm. it's within 30 days. It depends, again, on jurisdictions. They all have different laws. But then a formal hearing will take place where both parties have to be there and they can both speak for their side of the issue and what they think happened and whether they think this is fair. And then the judge will determine whether a restraining order will be fixed more permanently in place. Now, it won't be totally permanently. It's only possible in at least several states to get like up to 10 years. I think in divorces, most of the time, an emergency order is put in place because 
a breakup of a relationship is one of the most dangerous times when there are more likely to be instances of violence. Mm -hmm. And that's why they are temporary in nature. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And in divorces, sometimes the time limit on an order of protection will be during the pendency of the divorce. So while, while the divorce is ongoing, you aren't allowed to talk to her. You aren't allowed to go near this person's house. Sometimes it's really difficult when there are children involved because you still have to be able to communicate about custody arrangements. Right. So sometimes in those cases, you'll have to exchange custody through family members or like at a police station or other public place. Yeah. So in this case, Beth had requested protection for herself and her children. This is fairly typical. The May 22, 2010 complaint addressed her fears. She wanted Michael Order to stay away from their Union Street home for at least the time being, and she wanted all of the boys to live with her and to have no contact with their father. Her complaint states Michael was menacing her. He threatened to, and this is a quote, chop me up in pieces and bury me in many places over our property so I would never be found. Wow, so that went from zero to a hundred pretty quickly. Yes, it's shocking. So I know that it's typical if there's domestic violence in a relationship for it to worsen um, or sometimes even begin during a divorce, but that's really extreme. This was in front of their children? Well, it was alleged to be. We don't actually know for sure. And Michael didn't stop there, according to Beth's affidavit. He appeared to be unduly influencing his sons against their mother during regular parent time visits. Her complaint indicates her two teenage sons would come home from their visit saying things like, This is Dad's home, not yours. These are her words again. After each visit, I was subject to increasing verbal abuse from my two teenage sons. They have increasing contempt for me, stating that this is Dad's home, not yours. You are a dumb, stupid bitch. I could kick you in the head now and you'll die. That's horrible. It's very heartbreaking. Based on her allegations, Michael had abandoned any inclinations he'd ever had toward appropriate parenting. His reported words and actions were turning their children against her, and she wanted the courts to enforce an order keeping Michael away from all of them. She further wrote, quote, I believe they are being poisoned emotionally because my husband wants me dead and he and my children back in my home. I believe he will hurt me when he realizes I am talking about his behavior towards myself and my children. Okay, so I think this is really shocking. Especially given the happy family they were portraying to everyone outside of the home. That's true. Um, and I know that during divorce things can get ugly. But I also think we need to take a moment and talk about the importance and the value of having a good relationship with both parents. There's a reason why the courts provide leeway in letting older minors choose who they live with. It's not like TV. They don't convince the courts who their children should live with and have these big arguments. And they are advised to refrain from turning their children against the other parent. That accounts really strongly against you in a custody battle if it comes to that. And this is because research shows that when children have two good parents, they reap great benefits from loving and trusting both parents and having both of them in their lives. I so agree. for anyone going through divorce or dealing with a difficult parent, it's really important to not bring the kids into your divorce. It's possible that it wasn't avoidable here based on the complaints that are going on, but 
the children shouldn't be concerned about who's going to keep the marital home. That shouldn't be an issue that's in their mind at all. Absolutely. I agree. Let's take a break. So what happened with that order of protection? Well, I'm not sure what went sideways, but instead of a typical hearing, she and Michael were reported to have been ordered into some type of mediation where they came up with a stipulation ordering them to work together in the best interest of the children and admonishing Michael not to make threats against Beth or to put her in fear of harm, which is really strange. That traditional restraining order to keep Michael at a distance wasn't even considered and visitation and temporary custody arrangements for the boys were not altered. And it appears the domestic conflict continued. Okay, so that's probably, I mean, in 2010, there was a big push toward mediation, but not all courts considered the fact that it's not really appropriate in cases of abuse. Right. Because you can't really mediate and stand up for yourself. That's why you're in court, is to ask someone to stand up for you. Right. I'm inclined to believe that's probably what happened. It's very, very possible. It is the right time for that. Anyway, sometime around November of 2010, Beth reunited with Drew Opperly. He's a man who appears to have been her high school sweetheart. She was thrilled to be seeing Drew again, despite the fact that he was in the armed forces and currently worked in Afghanistan. They spent as much time as they could together, and they seemed to be building a future with each other. Oh no, I bet Michael didn't like that at all. I didn't find any comment on that. Anyway, she was in a rough spot with Michael, and Mm -hmm. she was really worried about the relationship with her children being destroyed. And although she was in a rough spot, Beth knew she could work her way through these hardships. She realized that abuse can be elevated during the course of a divorce or separation, and she hoped things would just get better. She hated that her relationship with Matthew and Cameron appeared to be destroyed, but she was confident that with time on her side, they'd be able to rebuild it and they'd be okay. As teens, they were electing to live with their dad next door at Grandma's house. So I think that Michael somehow did know that the boys could end up living with him just because they were older and would be able to choose. But she felt that after the divorce was final, she'd be able to put the pieces of their decimated relationships back together again. She'd fought her way back from alcoholism five years ago, and now that she was clean and sober, she figured she'd find a way to make money to put towards starting her new single life while taking care of her children. Okay. So she had a couple of her own home businesses. It sounded like she was a Reiki healer, and she had the farmer's market and her soap business. Was she still doing all of that? Yeah, and she was also working toward her RN certification at the community college. So her future looked really bright. She had someone to move forward with. She had a future to look forward to. She'd even figured out a few ways to make some money. On April 22, 2011, Beth learned her divorce was going to be finalized after the mandatory waiting period. Along with restoring Beth's maiden name, the decree also stated her youngest Dominic would be living with her, while Matthew and Cameron would be living next door at their grandparents' home with their dad. Each parent would enjoy weekend parent time and Wednesday night dinners on alternating weeks. This way the boys would still have close contact with each other three days each week. The court ordered Michael to pay Beth $120,000 for her share of the home and the business, 
and until that payment was made, Beth and Dominic were allowed to remain in the house. Once the payment was made, Beth would be obligated to vacate the home and Michael would take possession and be able to live there with Matthew and Cameron. The division of assets was fine with Beth. If Michael could come up with her portion of the assets quickly, she was ready to move forward in her new relationship with Drew. It felt like things were finally looking up for her. Little did she know she would be dead before the ink dried on her divorce decree. A few short weeks later, on Wednesday, May 3rd, 2011, Beth was last seen alive leaving her home at 9 a.m. She was heading to the gym for some Zumba and she was excited that she'd be meeting up with her son Matthew afterwards. At 10.43, Matthew called his dad using his mom's cell phone. Recognizing Beth's phone number, his father didn't pick up. Matthew left his dad a message saying, quote, I did what I had to do, but I know I will be all right. Matthew had killed Beth so that his dad could get the house back so he and his boys could live there happily ever after. This was the only way they were going to get their mother out of their house. Except that's not true. His dad just had to give her the money she was owed in the divorce. Yes. That's a silly reason to kill someone when it's... There's another way. I guess there's an not obvious, <laughs> An obvious way, but we don't know what those boys were told. But That's true. Maybe Matthew didn't clearly know. thought that this was something that he would have to do to make everything all right. Mm-hmm. At home, Matthew told his 13-year-old brother Cameron, I shot her. It's over. He calmly reassured his upset younger brother that they would be better off with her gone. Matthew told him he'd put her in the hole. It's not clear who had dug the hole, but it sounds like the hole was already prepared before this date. Remember, their property is six and a half acres, and at the back of the property, the police found a disturbing sight. There were what appeared to be two graves dug four feet deep into the ground. One was a gaping six and two and a half foot hole, and right next to that was a nine by three foot hole that had recently been filled in with dirt and gravel. It's not clear who dug the holes in advance, but the grave-sized holes seemed to be a common part of the household conversations. At least it was common knowledge to the males in the family. It is really weird that he can just tell his brother that I put her in the hole. Like, and Cameron knew what it meant. Yeah, like they just sit around and talk about these holes. Had they planned this beforehand? It's chilling, don't you think? It gives me chills when I think about it. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. So what did Michael do when he finally got the message? Well, according to Brian Ballou of the Boston Globe, Michael claimed that Matthew had sent him a text from his own phone in the early afternoon. Remember, he called from his mother's phone and left a message. Now he's saying that his son left him a text. Michael reported that this message led him to believe that Matthew was distraught. But again, he didn't contact Matthew. He didn't talk to Matthew. Or the police? Well, I'm not sure what that message said. Neither the first message didn't indicate any need for the police. That's true. Maybe he just thought that he was upset because he was at his mom's house. Right. But Michael just continued his day as usual. At home, Cameron, not sure if he should believe his brother, 
he called his dad and let him know what had happened. And again, Michael just continued his day as usual. That's really strange. It's very strange. And this wasn't an easy murder for Matthew. A sobbing Matthew was said to have even described what he did to Denise Desmond, his girlfriend's mother, saying, I needed to do what I needed to do. I needed to save my brothers. I'm not sure if he even knew that the divorce had been finalized, to be honest with you, but his girlfriend told authorities that they encouraged Matthew to call his father and confess, which they say he did. His girlfriend told authorities that they sat there and listened to the conversation. His father encouraged him to turn himself in, but Matthew said he needed one more night before doing that. Perhaps that explains why Michael did nothing despite both of his teenage sons contacting him regarding the murder of their mother, and perhaps not. But it sounds like it was a phone call, not a text, that indicated to him that Matthew was distraught. Okay, maybe it sounds like maybe it was a couple phone calls. It makes sense to me that if your child is asking for one more day before they turn themselves in, you might be tempted. Yes, I think so. It would be really hard. But this whole thing seems wrong. It's really strange, and Michael's not having an emotional reaction to this news that I am hearing about. Maybe he did, and he was just really quiet about it, but it doesn't sound like there was a lot of shock. Maybe things really were just that, the fights really were just that bad. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the problem, is we really don't know for sure. All we know is what the documents tell us, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't look good. But Michael says he finally listened to the message that came in from Beth's phone that morning at 5.30 p.m. He immediately called 911 after that. Okay. The police were familiar with this family. Michael's dad was a retired state police trooper. The family was well established within the neighborhood. And before the divorce proceedings, the family had been well thought of. But recently, the police had been called to the home to break up that fight between Michael and Beth. And then there had been the fight, the nasty one between Beth and Matthew in July when she kicked him out. Mm-hmm. And this time, Michael told the 911 dispatcher, and again I quote, I think that my son may have done something to my ex-wife. I heard that he shot her, unquote. When asked where he thought she was, he told them he thought Matthew might have buried her in the backyard. This is what Michael had threatened to do a few months earlier, but he didn't mention this to the police. Well, I certainly wouldn't. If I had threatened to murder someone and then they ended up murdered that way, I would be a little uncomfortable. Exactly. So according to the Herald News, they arrested Matthew that evening as he returned home with his grandmother. The investigative team descended on the house with search warrants in place. The police found powder used to make explosives and other dangerous materials in the home during their investigation, which may be telling us a little bit about the problems Matthew had in the past. Matthew's mother's body was exhumed from the backyard grave. She'd been shot in the back. So I'm still reeling from the explosives. So Matthew had been maybe making bombs? I don't know. There's no other mention of it. They just mentioned that explosive material was found. Oh. So I'm not sure if they had any indication of intent or what. Maybe he was just playing with them for fun? Maybe. Well, this is a little dark, but I'm kind of glad that she was shot in the back because I'm hoping she just didn't see it coming. 
Um, actually, we know she did see it coming because he did say something to her about everyone being better off with her dead before he killed her. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. No Sorry. bright side. No. So after four long years of legal maneuvering, Matthew Worcester pled guilty to second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life, but would be eligible for a parole hearing in 15 years. Um, had he gone to trial and been found guilty of first-degree murder, his sentence most likely would have been the same, but the trial would have been really hard on his family. This is one of those indicators of remorse. I think Matthew had great remorse for what he did. It sounds like he was very conflicted about doing it and felt remorse immediately. Like he immediately started telling everybody he'd done it and he didn't try to hide it. Um, and then, of course, he, he pled so that his family wouldn't have to go through it. His right. brothers didn't have to testify. His, father's, his, <laughs> his father didn't have to testify. Um, and that was... It's a great kindness to the family to plead. It is. During his interrogation, Vicki Ann Downing of the Taunton Gazette said that Matthew told the investigators, I had to do it. I had no choice. If you listen to all of the different quotes we have from Matthew, it sounds like he felt obligated to do this for the good of the family. Mm -hmm. And I just really wish we knew a little bit more so we could see why he felt like that. Me too. He, he did plead guilty and... So he was also affected by later rulings about juvenile sentencing. Um, you might remember Nikki was affected by later rulings. Oh, Nikki in our Nikki Reynolds episode one? Mm-hmm. Oh, episode okay. one, we talked about this. In 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles could not be sentenced under any circumstances to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for non-homicide offenses. But this was a homicide, right? This was a homicide. <laughs> But the court said that even when convicted of murder, judges must be allowed to take a juvenile's age into account, along with other relevant circumstances, in deciding the appropriate punishment. Now, well, not all sentencing guidelines allow judges to factor in their age as one of the factors. And this, so this was a big change for many states. Mm -hmm. And it's said to provide juvenile offenders with hope, a sense of purpose, and the chance for rehabilitation. So what are some of the relevant circumstances that they may factor in? Um, so it's just like any other case. Um, relevant circumstances might be things like abuse, might be things like mental illness. There are a lot of factors they can take into account. Most of them are basically looking at how likely is it that this individual is willing and able to be rehabilitated. Ah, okay. Which is why remorse is one of them, because if they feel bad about their crime, they're more likely to be rehabilitated because they on some level believe what they did was wrong. So anyway, that's why he's eligible for parole with some sentencing changes. He is most likely to be able to get parole. Why? What are, what are the factors they would be looking at in his case? Well, so one of the things about parole is they don't want to let you out if you're going to not have the stability to immediately commit some other crime, often a pettier offense. Mm -hmm. um, but he has a support system. He has people to live with. He has people who will help him reintegrate into society. Um, like his family? Yes. Okay. 
yeah, he has his dad and his brothers, but he also has that extended family that he grew up with. Right. Um, so he's got a lot of social support. Mm-hmm. Um, vitally, he showed a lot of regret and remorse from the very beginning. And although it sounds like he had some troubles at school um, and obviously with his family, he didn't have a prior criminal history. So these are some really important factors in granting parole. And because he sounded so upset and sounded like he felt like he had to do it, mm-hmm. it looks like he was possibly motivated externally. He felt some external pressure to get rid of his mom, whether he felt that she was really abusive or he felt that she was in the way for some reason. it It's not really clear why he felt like that, but it is clear that he felt that he had to do this, um, right. which makes it less likely that he'll do it again because he's not killing people for fun or um, because he has poor self-control. Um, so that rehabilitation idea, you can really see that in the parole standards. Right. So what happened to the dad? What's he doing? Well, today Michael Worcester lives in that pretty house on that pretty street in Northeastern Massachusetts. He raised two of his boys in this house next to his parents. Cameron is now an adult and lives in the house right next door where his grandparents used to live. Did the grandparents pass? His grandmother has passed. His grandfather, it looks like he's still living. I'm not sure if he is living with Cameron or if he is living somewhere else. Okay. One hour north of Northeastern in a medium security prison in Shirley, Massachusetts, Matthew continues to serve his prison sentence. If you or someone you love is frightened about something that is happening at home, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. 7233. Help is available to callers 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Hotline advocates are available for victims and anyone calling on their behalf to provide crisis intervention, safety planning, information, and referrals to agencies that can provide them assistance. Please don't hesitate to reach out. What do you think, listeners? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. There are a lot of unanswered questions. Feel free to join our discussions on Instagram at Parasite Podcast, Facebook at Parasite Podcast, or by writing to us at ParasitePodcast at Parasite.org. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe to the Parasite Podcast and share it with your friends. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and the Boston Globe, the Taunton Gazette, Newsdesk International, the Daily Mail, and the Enterprise for the information and photos shared in this episode. You can see the photos at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. Bye for now. Goodbye. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.